standard issue for all women. Hello, Hannah here and welcome to this edition of The Sunday Chops. And this week we have a very exciting guest for you. Okay, all our guests are exciting, but this is the first one for which I've cranked out some of the very little Latin that I know. So yes, coming up is a chat I had this week with Mary Beard. Now, I know you're thinking, isn't she a professor and a dame? And you'd be right. But I did ask her and she said, just Mary is fine. But I am going to call her the goddess of classical history and there's nothing she can do about it. The new series of Inside Culture with Mary Beard starts on Thursday night on BBC Two. That's the day after Joe Biden's inauguration. And the first episode is about just that, the transfer of power. So obviously we talk about whatever the hell has been going on in America in the last few weeks, months and years. We also talk about how future historians are going to make sense of these wild times that we live in now and about the expression I hate more than almost any other, the right side of history. So that's all coming up now. If you enjoy this episode and you've not found the time to write us a review yet, then now would be the perfect time. You know what to do. And in case you don't, it's give us five stars. Until next time. My whole life I've been absolutely fascinated by history. I think it's probably part of the reason I went into journalism because I think I I perceive journalism as being like history's preview service. I realise it's a lot more complicated than that. So I wondered if I could ask you to start with, as a historian, how easy do you think it's going to be for future generations to study this period that we're living through now, (laughs) given that on the one hand, we have access to, you know, the Vox Populi on a level yeah. that we've never had before. Yeah. But on the other hand, it's never been harder to find no. accurate, unbiased reporting. No, and in a way, I'm lucky because most of what I do, not all, but most of what I do is about the ancient Romans and partly the ancient Greeks. And you know, they are certainly loaded and full of bias. And there's much more information about them. And they've left much more behind them than people ever imagine but it still is relatively bounded you know I simply don't know how I would start to look at even at the history of the mid-20th century Mm. let alone you know what is now coming with with the possibility of preserving everything on social media I mean imagine doing a history Mm. of Twitter you know what on earth would that look like so I have to say I feel a bit terrified about the prospect it's kind of bad enough in some ways difficult enough and complicated enough living through all this (laughs) how on earth we will preserve the kind of information that we've now got you know will will there be for future historians a a great sort of repository of everybody's tweets (laughs) hell it's a frightening thought yeah and then how will we how will you start to make sense of it when the history here is now so noisy yeah you know, it used to be noisy for the Romans, but by the time you know time had weeded that out, you're not confronted with quite such a deluge of material. So, I always admire modern historians just making their way through it. Now more stuff's gone online. There's never really a definitive version of it. It can be altered. In the old days, you would go to the the library and you would look at the archive newspaper yeah, thing, that's right. and they're not yeah. all there now. Um, yeah. Most of it's online. <laughs> But it is kind of very odd because you do hope that someone is archiving this. Because I have done some work on the late 19th century and 
there. I mean, it's always very exciting because you go to the archive and you get the boxes out and you get the, you know, little pieces of paper and it's the dinner invitation and the, you know, somebody saying thank you so much for that lovely present and it's really kind of amazing material mm. of the lives of the people that I was looking at, and you think nobody would find that for me. No, if anybody you know wanted to know what I'd been doing uh, over the last month and didn't have access to my email, mm. I, mean, I, I will leave nothing behind me in that kind of way. Yeah. What I've always found very exciting when I have done a little bit of, as I said, a little bit of work in the 19th century is I think there is you know, opening somebody's letters. Yeah. I mean, it feels a bit wicked, actually. It feels a bit transgressive. You kind of think this isn't addressed to me, <laughs> especially when you find them kind of fessing up to things that perhaps they didn't think people like me would be looking at. <laughs> um, I mean, I did find once that a colleague of mine's grandfather or great-grandfather had actually had a failed engagement. And I just said to him, oh, breezily, when I met him in the street, I've just been reading about your great-grandfather's engagement that fell through in 18, whatever it was. <laughs> he knew nothing about it. <laughs> now, your new series, the yeah. first episode is about the transition of power and to continue yeah. to blur that idea between historian and journalist. Mm. I would like to say that you got an insight in what it's like to be a journalist, I would imagine, while making this in that, yeah. boy, has that story changed quick in yeah. the last fortnight. No, no, it has. And it's, um, you know, it's, quite, well, it's quite scary making a television programme about it because you think, how quickly is this moving? Mm. For me, it's been a great opportunity to, to think about some of the things that are similar with the period that I work on mm. and some of the things that are very different. And I think that almost every historian would say that those moments when power changes hands are always very fragile. They're always likely to go wrong. It's always the most dangerous part of any regime. Now, I think that what's interesting about what's happening now, both interesting and tragic in, in equal measure, I think, is that what we have constructed for ourselves in the way the Romans never did rituals and ceremonies to to try to kind of make that transition work. And I, I think what's what's quite unsettling is how little it takes to upset that that kind of cultural attempt to yeah. make everything okay. I mean the Romans didn't have that. You know, and you know when people read about Roman emperors, you know half of them, you know, did not die in their bed. You know, they died with poisoned mushrooms from their wife or <laughs> uh, assassination. I mean, partly like soap what opera those, characters. Yes, soap <laughs> opera. What those stories are telling us, in a way, I think, is not that the Romans were actually necessarily really more brutal than we are, but that they sort of looked at those moments of transition of power absolutely unmediated by everything. There was no Roman coronation ceremony. There was no kind of inauguration ceremony. It just happened. And it happened horribly brutally, actually. And most later cultures have, have generated all kinds of ways of somehow making that much more seamless, of allowing the transmission of power to happen 
calmly. Yet, of course, it's underneath. It is the moment where any regime, whether it's a dictatorship, whether it's a democracy, whether it's a monarchy, is always at its most vulnerable. And there is something frightening about seeing how vulnerable it is. And mm. I mean, in the first programme, we talked to Armando Iannucci, who has quite a lot of experience yeah. of thinking about the transmission of power, yeah. both in Stalin and in America. Yeah. And uh, so it's very interesting seeing his take on, on, that, on that real fragility. Oh, God, I love him. I met him once at Cambridge Literature Festival because I live oh, in right. Cambridge, yeah. And it was genuinely one of the most exciting things that had ever happened to it's, me and that I very, got to have a 20-minute yeah. conversation with Armando Iannucci and it was brilliant. <laughs> and we talked about American politics. Now, that brings me to something that is interesting. I mean, obviously, if you look at what happened after Stalin died, in fact, if you look at throughout Russian history, it didn't end very well for the losers. Let's put those in sort of quote marks. And I wonder what history can teach us about what we're going to do with this problem that we face now of how do we deal with the fact that we have people who have lost but won't accept it yes well I think it's very I think it's very very difficult because we we've put a huge amount of stress on the notion of being a good loser (laughs) somehow you know whether that's in you know our office when we're someone's going to be staff rep or whatever Mm. that that somehow we've constructed this image of the good loser because that helps us manage those kind of you know we we have to to manage people losing and so we have a, a version of what it is to lose well which gives the loser that kind of status Mm. of being a good loser but it is you know I've often thought to myself gosh you know it's it's a very odd idea isn't it that you should somehow always behave well when you wanted to win (laughs) of course uh, we want people to do that because the democratic process kind of rests on on that but I think the you know I think history has very little optimistic solutions to this I was dreading you were going to say that. I'm afraid, you know. And, you know, I talked a bit about the the passage of power in Rome being very fragile with and seeing, in a sense, the fragility marked in the the idea that the the previous incumbent is is murdered, basically. But, you know, that's what civil war is about in Rome. If you have none of those things to fall back on, even if they are fragile, about there being honour in defeat etc etc you do what the romans do you fight it out and and so a a lot of our apparently cynics might call it empty ceremonial yeah that you know whether that's ceremonial monarchy or the military or whatever what it's doing is actually stopping the fragility becoming apparent and but of course it's very easy to reveal that Mm. and to reveal just how complicated it is and how difficult and, the, you know, there is a yawning chasm, you know, between being in power and not being in power. There is, you know, in some ways what Trump has done is we're still in the middle of it. It's, you know, it's tragic. It is, um, you know, it's hard to find the right adjectives to describe it, honestly. Yeah. But I kind of, I sort of wonder what, what people will say, and this is the historian in me, what will people say in 300 years time when they look at this? What will they say in 500 years' time? 
thousand years time how will they look back and i think one of the things i'll say is that look this was terrible because it revealed how difficult western democracies still find it mm. because it revealed that you could break the rules with devastating consequences actually that that we all pretend to ourselves that everything is seamless and x is elected and then y gives up power and everybody shakes hands and you know but it only takes one person not to and i think the, we have to look at our own institutions there and they're very different from those in the united states but i do always think the Uh, I'm now old enough to remember the departure of quite a few prime ministers. The absolutely classic news item, which is always the old prime minister's belongings are being taken away by the removal van yeah. out the back. Right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, yeah. you know, we have our own ways of of trying to make this okay. The visit to the Queen, you know, it's in all kinds of significant ways, quite different from what happens in America. But we still know yeah. that we have to invest... We have to invest a lot of cultural energy. Well, it's, it's interesting, you know, you say that about the Queen, because I've, I've gone off my list of questions now, because it occurs to me that although the, the position of being the Queen isn't something that comes with intrinsic power, we are about to have a handover of power coming at some point, let's say in the next decade, in the monarchy. Yeah. And it could actually, if it doesn't go well, be the end of the monarchy. Essentially. Well, I, you know, I don't. I, I, I think that is unlikely. I, I would agree, but 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 I, I agree that we have the phrase which we always kind of fall back on, which is a terribly brutal one. It's you know the king is dead, long live the king. Mm. Yeah, and you think is that simple? No, it's not that yeah. simple. But, but that's when it will be at its weakest. That's when its enemies yeah, it will is. be able it to is. say, "Do it we need always, a monarchy at all?" Every handover is when mm. the institution is its weakest. And that is, you know, that is the same for medieval monarchies. It's the same the world over. You know, that yeah. it's when it's when the power is transferred from X to Y that it's open to challenge. It's most open to challenge. And I think it you can sort of see it, can't you? Because I I suppose I think You know, I was born in 1955, so even me has never, I've never known another monarch. I think it's going to sound ever so odd. You know, I'm, I'm not a great sort of national anthem mm. person, but it's going to seem very odd, it being God Save the King. Our money's yeah, going to look different. Our stamps going are going to look, look different. And, you know, yeah, that's right. You know, and I think what what's interesting, and this will also happen in the States, and it's is that it's not just the people... At the top, you know, it's not just President X is now President Y or King X is now Queen mm. Y or whatever. But all the way down the food chain, there are people having to make adjustments. You know, the stamps are going to look different. Mm. Someone's going to have to design it. There are people in the official offices and they'll be taking one portrait down and they'll be putting another portrait mm. up. And so there's a whole kind of battalions of people who we don't normally see. Yeah. And in some ways, I think that's why Yanucci is so good, because he actually shows us them, that are kind of working flat out to do this. I yeah. mean, and I do think it's very, there is a kind of interesting comparison with the Romans here, because, you know, I was mentioning just now this idea that someone's going to be putting up 
a different photograph and it's going to be a different head on the coin and a different head on the stamp. One of the things the Romans did, which I always thought was rather inspired, was that, not with coinage, but with marble sculpture, quite often they would recarve the head of the old guy. They do what? Like the new, yes. So you literally... You've got the old emperor there in marble. You get your chisel out, you make it look, you alter the hair a bit, you kind of make that nose a bit more like, and you make him into the new guy. That's brilliant. It is. It's, a, it's wonderful. Yeah. yeah. And, and you, thrifty. And they, it's, you know, A, it's thrifty. I have to say, you know, it's part of this is you've just invested a hell of a lot of money in a very expensive marble sculpture yeah. and you're not going to throw it away because the bugger dies. Right? <laughs> but it's also kind of, you know, I was saying, look, the Romans aren't very good at transmission of power. It is one of the ways in which they are, yeah. because they're sort of saying, look, old guy, doesn't take much to turn him into the new no. one. That's really <laughs> you know, interesting. Just, you know, a few little hits of the chisel yeah. and you've got the new emperor. The second episode is about the evolution of language, which again is timely and totally fascinating. You know, historically, the job of the dictionary is to record common usage. So obviously some words are going to change over time. But we're currently in a situation where with certain words or we've got certain words that mean two entirely different things or entirely different things to many different people. For the sake of argument, I'm going to come up with the word fascist. Um, (laughs) Is this a problem... And if so, why? Well, I think that's what we want to look at. People are very, very, and I think they always have been, they're very preoccupied about changes in language use. And we've seen, we've seen plenty of changes, certainly in my lifetime. Utter shift. One of the things that the gay movement has done, gay rights made the word queer good. Mm. When I was kind of taught when I was a kid never to say it. So there are some quite positive and interesting reclamations yeah. of words. Now, those most people like. It's good. You know, you know there's university departments of queer history yeah. in a way that would have been inconceivable 40 years ago. That's great. But then other words shift in, in different directions. Uh, and we feel much more anxious and we feel much more generationally split. Um, because we've been brought up to talk in a different way or to write in a different way. And I think people are often very presentist about it, Mm. but they tend to think this is just a phenomenon of now. Um, uh, (laughs) And and it goes together with, I think, sometimes rather over-anxious sense of language going to the dogs. You know, people can't spell or they can't punctuate or they put their apostrophes in the wrong place mm. or whatever. So there's, you know, uh, uh, there is a sort of sense of wanting to hold on to a kind of a language that doesn't change. Yeah. Yeah. And, and yet language has always changed. And, you know, we, we know that because we know that we don't speak like Shakespeare wrote, you know. <laughs> um, you know, we know that language changes and yet we always find that quite destabilising or liberating at the, same, at the same time. And, you know, I think, I mean, one of the things I hope we'll be able to do is, is not just think about language in terms of the written language, but also how you speak. Mm. And I, I think the thing that I found most, I just kind of 
striking is BBC iPlayer has got a wonderful sort of sets of curated past programmes, you know, for, for early archaeology programmes. And just very occasionally I go and have a look and you think, well, what do you think? Did people really speak? Yeah, it's like really that? formal. Yeah, you know, I never used to watch, but my mum and dad did tell me about animal, vegetable, and mineral. You know, it's fantastic archaeology program of I suppose the sixties. They've got some episodes of it, and I thought, you know, not only are there all kinds of things that you expect that it's old blokes in suits and you know it's hard. Occasionally a woman, um, yeah. but they're all white. I, I think the thing that shocks you most is how they're speaking because. You know, I suppose we we know that the Queen, we do know that her voice has changed slightly, mm. right? But we know the kind of Queen is allowed, because the Queen's the Queen, she's allowed to speak like that. Yeah. You go back to these programmes and you think, blimey, if you went on television speaking like that now, people wouldn't understand what you were saying. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> and... So I'm quite interested in, you know, how that works. Also how, in terms of, you know, this this kind of mythical notion of the Queen's English. And we have broken that down a bit. People don't speak like mm. Mortimer Wheeler and Glyn Daniel used to speak <laughs> on these early programmes. And we've become, I think, much more expecting to hear regional accents. Sort of expect it. There was an interesting program recently on the radio, however, with a lot of people of colour saying, You expect people of colour to speak posh on the radio. Mm. Some do and some don't, but there's still limits on what sounds all right to the great, and I'm putting all that in inverted commas, to people when they have a newsreader. Yeah. And those limits have changed. Yeah. And, you know, and I hope they'll change more. But it's still not not everybody's voice is welcome. Yeah. The news is unrecognisable. When yeah. I watched the HBO series about Chernobyl, I went back and, on YouTube and watched all the original reporting that was done yeah. by the BBC ITV. And it's just a guy at a desk just, just saying facts. I, There's nothing I know. bizarre. No, it is. And it's, it's relatively recent. Yeah. It changes in different ways and at different rates and in different places mm. but I was listening I can't remember why it was now to, to a news broadcast that was only something like 2000 it was only 20 years ago and I already thought it sounded foreign I thought it sounded like a foreign world yeah it it remains I think something that people get very understandably feel very destabilized that people don't speak the same language that they used to speak when they grew up you know I mean and I, I mean I kind of think in, in, in very trivial way about how I was taught at school. I remember taught not only about how you spoke, but the kind of writing that we had to do. I, I remember one le- whole lesson was in my English class when I was about 11. And perhaps it already seemed odd because I remember it. You know, yeah. something that was how to write a telegram. and you had to put detained in london stop and you think people we were actually taught (laughs) wow so you know language is really really fast moving and yet we like to think of it as slow moving whether it's orally You, you learn all kinds of bits of convention 
that it, particularly if you're my age, it takes you a while to catch up with. You know, the, the idea that it somehow is, it can look a bit aggressive if you end a tweet with a full stop. I mean, yeah, yeah. Yes, I saw that, sure. yeah. And um, I think... And the oh. sub-editor in me was just like, just bursting out of me, just yes. like, what? Yeah. yeah. And we know that people are... I, I think very interested in this from all sides because otherwise, you know, that book by Lynn Truss, Each Shoots and Leaves, yeah. actually she did it very well, but it was a massive, massive yeah. bestseller and it was about punctuation. Yeah. I wonder if that would be as big a seller now if it was released now as as, as it was yes. then. I don't um, know. Back in 2014, you, you made headlines when you received a huge amount of abuse or online abuse on Twitter, you took one of your trolls out to lunch. And at the time, I thought... That's he, a took good... to... he took, he me, took out to... me out to lunch. He took you out to lunch. Let's be strictly accurate. <laughs> at the time, I thought, that's a great idea. You know, I can only see positive things coming from that. Uh, more people should do it. More people didn't do it. It seems like 2021, we're even worse at learning how to speak to each other properly yeah. online. I wondered what you made of recent moves by Twitter and Facebook to sort of de-amp the volume. I think it's very hard to know. I feel totally ambivalent because one level, I think deamping the volume is a jolly good idea and it's about time they did it. And it's about time in some ways that Twitter and Facebook saw that they had responsibility in mm. some level for what's going on on their platforms. On the other hand, you think so the right to speak is going to be determined by them. Yeah, we're in 100%, Mary, and I find that really relieving. You know, how do we get our heads around this? I thought they'd done the right thing. But I thought, so the kind of access to the public sphere is going to be determined by the likes Mm. of Mark Zuckerberg. Hang on. We haven't begun to think about how to manage this. And I think, on the other hand, though, that we, we can be a bit over over self-flagellatory because you know this is really going back to my idea that what was I taught to do at school I was taught to write a telegram I mean <laughs> social media is still relatively young there are some people who are actually social media natives but not that many really most people are learning and I kind of hope though this you know this might be I, I totally accept this might be wildly over optimistic But my hope would be that over the next decade or so, I have to say it doesn't look as if we're going in that direction, but never mind, we get to understand what the basic communicative rules are. I mean, I think we're still still trying it out at the moment. We're still trying out what happens if you say you filthy slag. (laughs) You know, in ways that we certainly, you know, you wouldn't go into a pub, certainly if you were if you were sober and say to some random woman you happen to not particularly agree with you filthy slag people are happy to do that on twitter i i'm you know i'm quite amazed how disinhibited yeah. they feel you know i'm kind of hoping that in the end we will learn a bit to police ourselves I and mean, there's always going to be horrible people on social media they're all horrible people and at a certain level we're not quite clear, I think, about what we want. I mean, we don't want everybody always to have to be polite to no. each other because people aren't polite to each other always and we don't want to live in a world, actually, where no one yeah. ever gets cross. <laughs> you know? But it's how you manage that crossness. Yeah. And I think that we're increasingly 
aware of the problem. I mean, I, I mean, I think what was interesting about Twitter and Facebook was that people instantly saw what the difficulty was. Mm. It wasn't even those who were at some level like me clapping still said, but are we sure this is mm. quite the way that you do this? So I think we're getting a bit savvier as a, as a community, as an online community about this. But let's say, I mean, you know, I tend to be an optimistic soul, but and probably here over-optimistic, but because I think, you know, there are some just dreadful things. And But I hope maybe we'll learn to be more aware and brave about mm. policing. We'll, you know, we'll learn to say, you know, would you mind take that down? Yeah, I'm loving your optimism because I really hope things improve. <laughs> I mean, I've, I, as I as I say yeah. it. <laughs> no, no, I mean, you I need to stay optimistic, Mary. Course, somebody needs to. You know, I, I say it and I think, does this sound convincing <laughs> as I actually say it? And I'm not sure it does, but it is what I'd like yeah. to think. Well, you know more young people than I do, so you, you've probably got reason yeah. to, to be optimistic. And also, I think that probably the number of the truly nasty out there, it's not great. There's a lot of sad people. There's a lot of lonely people. There's a lot of people who are disinhibited because it's very late at night. And they've yeah. had too much to drink. And they're just going, and look, you know, is it ever the case? Mm. You know, have I ever, have I never sent yeah. a tweet that I didn't, perhaps not a good idea mm. in the morning when I'd done it? You know, we all do that and we don't want to stop people yeah. doing that. But I, I suspect that more people who write horrible things are sad rather than really, really mean. Yeah. Um, okay, so this is my last question. An expression that I keep seeing increasingly in the world is the expression being on the right side of history. And it's it's an expression I absolutely hate with a passion. Partly because oh, good. I- partly because I think it, it presents as wanting the best for the masses, but actually what it is really about is your own personal legacy as a, as an expression. So I just wondered as a historian, is there a right side of history? No. Well, it's, it's really funny that you should say that because a long-term project I've had, which somebody eventually will take me up on, I wanted it to be great for a radio programme. Mm. I wanted to, to do a series of radio programmes called The Wrong Side of History. And mm. <laughs> I wanted to go and look at people who we now think were just wrong. Yeah. You know, the people who opposed the Great Reform Act, and, yeah. um, opposed women's suffrage. Yeah. And, you know, Pro- prohibitionists. And so prohibitionists. Prohibitionists had the best yeah. intentions and just the and, worst and ideas. I think it's it would be great because at some level I have no sympathy at all for them. And yet these were people who were, they were probably not stupid. Mm. How, how do they think that? And why did they think mm. that? And why did that seem to them the right thing to do? Why, why were there women who opposed women's suffrage? Mm. Yeah. And I've always thought, I mean, you know, it's part of you know, history being written by the winners. But, and that in some ways feeds into a very black and white, and here we're back to you know, Twitter speak, very sort of rigid, yes, no, right, wrong, version Mm. of history just like you know twitter you're either with us or you're not when when actually history is always about compromises and complexities and nice people saying things that you disagree with and 
having to wonder why and how you would how you would convince them mm. i mean how would i convince a slave owner yeah that it was wrong and i think that quite a lot of social media feeds into to a, a rhetoric of outrage rather than a rhetoric of persuasion yeah you're wrong and then you know put whatever kind of expletive after mm. that you won't when what we should what we've got to do is we've got to pers- We've got to persuade people without thinking that we're ever all going to agree. Do we actually, you know, again, it's a bit like wanting a world in which no one gets cross. Do we, do we want a world in which we absolutely all of us agree about everything? I mean, it does sound dreadful. Sounds completely ghastly. Well. So, therefore, what we need to do, and I don't think we've ever been good at it. I mean, I think that, you know, it's all very well, and I've just fallen into the trap of saying, oh, it's this Twitter world. Well, actually, an awful lot of political discourse wasn't heard and a lot of people had no voice, mm. you know, 150 years ago, you know. So if you look at the House of Commons 150 years ago, they're basically all the same class and background. Mm. So it was quite easy to sort of disagree like gentlemen, you know, because that's what they'd been trained to mm. do. And, you know, happily, we're not all the same class and background any longer. So we need a few more, we need a bit harder th- thinking, I think, about how within that, you know, a very positive mm. diversity, not enough diversity, but still very positive, how we kind of manage our disagreement. Yeah. Mary, this has been absolutely fascinating. (laughs) It's been lovely to talk to you. The new series, it starts on Thursday and uh, two episodes and I look forward to it enormously because normally when I interview people, I've seen it, but I haven't seen it because it's quite quite up to the wire. (laughs) Not only have we got Armando, but we've got Margaret Atwood, David Olashoga, Sarah Churchwell, and we have got a whole load of very big actors like Simon Russell Beale and Brian Cox doing a sort of joint performance of King Lear <laughs> or a very short extract of King Lear. I, so. I'm just going to sit on my sofa and wait for that to come on the telly. Standard issue for all women.